Well, good morning, Trinity Church. Well, that's a great welcome. Thank you. Hey, it is good to be back with you this morning. Last week, Pastor Alfredo was uh, here, and he shared with us that the best things are yet ahead. And I hope you had a chance to hear that message, because not only does it lead into today's passage, but it's very true. The best is yet to come. Lisa and I uh, took the week off to take some time with our Kansas and Missouri cousins. They came out to our home, and we hosted them before they went to Rugby Sevens, uh, which we actually joined them for. I'd never seen rugby up close before, and yeah, well, it's amazing. Uh, but it's good to be back with you. And, and speaking of family, uh, I wanted to take a little bit of time just this morning as the Trinity cha- uh, family to share with you some things uh, that I've been disseminating uh, with the elders, uh, getting feedback on, thinking about uh, with the directional team, with the pastors, ministry directors, and most recently at the uh, recharge event with the ministry teams. And, and what that is, is I've been sharing with them a little bit about uh, what we're calling a transitional vision for Trinity Church during this interim uh, period. The elders have given me permission to have some time with you at the next um, uh, town hall meeting, but I wanted to take a moment before we got to that and share with you uh, the idea of a transitional vision, let you reflect on it a little bit. I think it's important that vision be something we all own. It's not something imposed on an organization. Um, and, and so before we get into 2 Corinthians 5 this morning, I'd like to share that with you if it's okay with you. Is it okay with you? Okay, all right, just wanted to... <laughs> As we all know, our church's mission is rooted in Jesus and reaching our worlds. And I love the fact, by the way, that it's plural. It's not just reaching our world, it's reaching our individual worlds, the worlds that we live in. Uh, so that's why we exist. That is our mission. Mission statements always tell us, why do we exist? Why does the church exist? And, and honestly, biblically, that's it. Vision statements uh, tell us where are we going to go as a church. Uh, what will be our vision, vision for the future of our church, at least transitionally, in the next whatever period of time God gives us together? Where are we going to head? What's going to be our desired future? What is going to be the course that we set our sails for together? So in this interim period, I really believe that we do need some kind of transitional vision I've been praying about that a lot and pondering it a lot and just kind of pushing it out there to people. You know, what should this be? And uh, thus far, here's what, here's what we've come up with. We'll throw it up on the slide for you there. It is um, journeying together with Jesus toward transformation. That's a transitional vision. It's a proposed transitional vision. But I think a lot of the bones of it even come out of from our study here in 2 Corinthians. You'll notice up on the slide we'll have a verse for you out of 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 through 18, which says, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Would you agree with that? When the Holy Spirit is let loose in our lives, there is freedom from the past, freedom from fear, freedom from so many different things. And it goes on to say, and we all, that's together, all of us together, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, which requires spending time with Him, and in a sense, journeying with Him, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We become like Christ, in the image of Christ, transformed into that. From this comes 
uh, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As I've been pondering that through 2 Corinthians, uh, it's, it's occurred to me more and more that this really is a journey. It's something we do together. It's something we do with Jesus. And the end result is we become different people. We become transformed people. And I think every part of this is important. Uh, the journeying, that, that taking time together uh, with Jesus and with each other and becoming more and more like him. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we talked about a pause in this transition. And I think for uh, many of us, it was a, a question mark. So what do we mean by a pause? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What is this pause? Um, it's not actually either of those, it's an intentional thing. And as uh, Nancy Moore has shared with us, as the elder board has kind of percolated about this a, a bit, before our next lead pastor comes, or the rapture, right? I think I would just prefer the rapture, you know, go on to eternity. But before that happens, we, we want to be intentional about a couple of things. In fact, three specific things that we want to be focusing on. And the first one is simply to be renewing ourselves in our relationship with Jesus and with each other. Would you agree that would be a good thing? Just to build our relationships together with Christ and others. Secondly is we need to provide some time and some uh, opportunity to regroup as a church and specifically in our uh, campus. There are things we want to do here physically uh, before the next pastor comes. And of course, if the rapture comes, who cares? But... Um, we want to do some things differently. That's um, being led by a number of the people in our staff. Uh, just this last week, um, we got a new phone system. Now, that may not seem like very much until you realize we've been paying $1,700 a month for our phone system. <clears throat> Scott Clayton got a new system that's even better, and it cost us $39 a month. <clears throat> yes, Scott. And those who worked with him. That was a team effort. Uh, we have a new website that is in a beta form right now that is, is incredibly simple. If uh, you're visiting here, you'll be able to go onto the website and instantly find the things you need to know. We've got uh, plantings, a uh, parking lot. There's just a lot of things we want to do physically on the campus, and that takes time. So we want to pause to work on that. And I think most uh, significantly, we want to take time to work with each pastor and each ministry director to talk about things like how do we enable each ministry to transform us? Not just to come and participate and enjoy it, but to be transformed. How do we take every ministry and make it more hospitable toward new families who are coming in and checking out Trinity to see if this is where they want to be? Um, we want to better equip those who serve with us. We want to train them for ministry and broaden the work of prayer among us. Folks, this is one of the key things that we've got to do more and more of. So these are the three intentional things we want to do, and I, I really think it's vitally important for us to know that this is not a pause on our progress. It is uh, giving us the opportunities to change and be changed. It's not a pause for Nancy Morris. She's looking around the nation for uh, pastors that, that fit what we think we uh, are and what we need, and she's going to continue to look until we're ready, and, and she, we're not going to lose the opportunities uh, that we might think, oh, this pause is going to keep us from this person or that person. Nancy's on top of that. And it's not a pause of the great things that God is doing among us. There are so many things. I wish we had time just, to, and maybe we should just take some time some Sunday morning and just talk about the great things God is doing. Um, I am encouraged, and I don't think I'm alone by 
by God's actions among us. And folks, we've all known that we've had conflict in the past. In talking with all of you, I feel like that is past. We still have woundedness among us at times, and we want to continue to seek healing uh, and restoration for any who still feel that woundedness. But for the most part, uh, the people I'm talking to feel encouraged and hopeful and joyful, and they are ready for God to do more. So that's the transitional vision for now. I would love your feedback as we think about this. Honestly, I'd love to have you come up to me and say, um, Doug, gosh, you missed, you missed the boat, man. Or, no, I really like that. That resonates with what I think God wants to do among us. So if you would do that with me, I would love that. For now, let's take a minute and pray and get into 2 Corinthians 5. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. Would you open them up or open up your app and let's get ready to hear from God in 2 Corinthians 5. Heavenly Father, um, the more I get the privilege of, of doing what I'm doing here at Trinity, the more that we gather together, uh, the more that we're in your word as we take time to pray together, as we seek personal change and transformation, God, the more encouraged I am by who you are. You are the God who never gives up on anyone. Father, you tell us in this passage this morning that salvation, transformation, this experience of being renovated from the inside out is available to all, and all is all. It's not just a few select individuals. Christ died for all of us. Father, we're so thankful for that because it gives all of us hope. It gives all of us a sense of value and uh, inclusion. Father, you don't exclude anyone willfully. You allow each of us to make a choice, but you desire that all would be saved, all would come to you. So, Father, this morning as we take time in 2 Corinthians 5, I pray that you would teach us and that you would touch us. Father, we don't want this to be just head knowledge. We really want to engage our hearts and, uh, and be different in life. So we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever caught yourself saying, if only I had known such and such, then I would have done such and such? You ever found yourself saying that? You know, you kind of look at the past and you say, gosh, if I'd only known that, I would have acted differently. For instance, uh, if you'd only known that Home Depot would generate more than 100 billion um, high margin revenue in the years that it's been around, uh, the IPO in the 1980s was $12 a share. If you had bought $1,000 worth of, of Home Depot back in the 1980s, you know what you'd be worth right now? $11.5 million. Individually. Wow, that would change things. If I'd only known that back in the 1980s, then I would have thus and so. Maybe you're from my generation and you say, man, if I'd only known that prolonged exposure to UV sun rays uh, could cause skin cancer and wrinkling. I actually used that in high school. SPF, four. <laughs> we used coconut oil. I mean, what were we thinking if we'd, we'd only known that? You know, we probably would not have lathered ourselves with it and laid out in the sun until we returned brown and crisp. If I'd only known that shark cage diving was such a blast, then I would have done this a whole lot earlier, right? Probably not. <laughs> If you've done this, God bless you. I'm not getting in that cage. Man, if I'd only known, then I would have done this, right? Well, as we come to the scripture this morning, 
We're going to find Paul saying that to us. If I'd only known, and I do know, in fact, now that I know that, here's how I should live. So we're going to take some time actually to go through a series of slides. So don't get um, bored. I was going to say bored. How can you be bored with the Word of God? Uh, don't worry about the delay. We're going to look at uh, the first five chapters, but just in a synopsis, if I'd only known kind of thing. So let's throw them up on the screen here. Uh, we're going to read them for you. If I'd only known that God loves to, conf- uh, to comfort the brokenhearted, if I'd only known that, then I could have enjoyed greater calm and courage in the midst of all of my struggles, if I'd only known and, and believed that. That is, by the way, from First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 1. Number two, if I had only known that every single one of God's promises, folks, every single one is fulfilled in Jesus. Everything that God has said, I'll do this for you, is fulfilled in Jesus. Then I would have been more focused on him when I needed God's goodness in my life. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. If I had only known that Jesus gained the ultimate victory over sin and death, then I would have found greater deliverance over my failures and greater freedom from my fear of death if I'd only known and and really tied into that in 2 Corinthians 2. If I'd only known that my sufficiency, my adequacy, my fitness for serving God comes straight from Him and not from me, then I could have had greater confidence in, in stepping out to serve others and placed less emphasis on on how others perceived me or how I perceived them and their inadequacies. If I'd only known that God is the one who empowers me, it would have made a difference. If I'd only known that the more I ponder and think about God's greatness and glory, the more freed up I would have been from my past and transformed in the present. 2 Corinthians 3. If I'd only known that God opens people's spiritual eyes to see that Jesus is God. Did you know that's God's work, not yours? It's God's work to open their spiritual eyes so that they go, oh, I didn't realize this is what God is and does. If we'd only known that, I think we would pray more for that divine work to happen in lost people's lives. If we had only known that we can live each challenging day by the all-surpassing, renewing power of God, and that in doing so, the world would see Jesus more in me, then I would have relaxed more and let God's power shine through me and others' brokenness. Not having shame anymore, not having a critical spirit, not having conflict over others' perceived failures, because we live each day by the renewing power of God. And finally... Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. If I had only known the best was yet to come, if I'd only really thought about that, I would have held on less tightly to the things of this world. Folks, all of those lessons come right out of what we've already studied in 2 Corinthians 1 through 5. All of these are truths, assurances, promises, and empowerment that God gives us. But folks, today, it's time to apply them. Paul says, if I'd only known these things, then, and today is the then. What do we do with all of this stuff? What do we uh, do to apply it? Well, let's take a look at it. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Look at the text. It's going to be on the screen for you. 
It says, therefore, and by the way, we're going to see that word therefore four times in these ten verses. So it's a, it's a significant application. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are known, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, the Bible uses two main Greek words to talk about this idea of knowing. And so, as we get into this text, it's important to know what, which one are we talking about, because they're both different. They're both very um, selective in, in how they apply to us. So, we're going to notice, first of all, that there is a word for knowing. It's actually in verse 21, the last verse in this section, the word gnosko. And it simply means to know by intimate experience. To know by intimate experience. For instance, if you say, well, I know how to drive a car, that's gnosko. If you say, uh, well, I know what a pear tastes like, that's gnosko. I know what that first kiss felt like, that's gnosko. So we come to know these things by personal experience. We engage in them, and it teaches us. We try it, and, and we see what it's like. The other word, which we find right here in verse 11, is the word oida, which is to know by casual observation. So there's some distance here. So, for instance, if we know that the weather this next week is going to be hot, how do you know that? Well, you haven't been there yet, so you've looked at your weather app, right? I did that yesterday. Dear Lord. <laughs> Coming from Carlsbad, it's like, oh, my goodness. I asked somebody this morning, how long does this last? Is this normal? Um, yeah, kind of. I was hoping they'd say, well, no. No, of course not. So that is oida. You know by observation. You look and, and you tell because of what you see. Uh, you know that if you stick your tongue to a frozen pipe, metal pipe on a playground like up at Oakland, the old school up there, what happens? You're going to be there a while, right, until a friend comes along with a bottle of water and, and frees you. So you know that by observation. You've seen it on a video. You've had a friend who's done it. We know that if we uh, put jello on our scalp, you know, the jello powder, it's going to give our hair a different color. And that is a lot of fun. I haven't done it myself. But you know by observation, if you've seen it, it's like, yeah, okay, I see what's going on there. Which of the two does Paul use here in this? We know the fear of the Lord. It's by casual observation. Now, we would want to say, no, no, I know the fear of the Lord by experience. I've actually experienced God. I've, I've seen his awesomeness, his amazingness, his, his uh, trembling fearfulness as I stand in his presence. But what Paul is doing is he's looking back to all of the first five chapters, and he's saying, remember what you've just seen, observed in all of that? All of these, if I'd only known things? That is God at work, and that is what causes us to stand in reverence of him. So he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? Well, here's one of three things that we do. Number one, we should gently seek to persuade others. Gently seek to persuade others. I think you and I are pretty much alike, that when we find a good thing, we like to tell others. Do you remember the, uh, the very first time you tried In-N-Out? Anyone here not ever tried In-N-Out? Okay. I you know, we tried it, and we went, oh, I love the simple menu. It's a eat, you know, good price. Love the hamburgers, the toasted bun, um, and, uh, oh, the fries. The fries are great. You know, you enjoyed all of that, and then... Well, then you found out there was a secret menu, right? Neapolitan shakes, the quad quad burgers, the um, 
grilled cheese sandwiches. Now, if you don't know there's a secret menu, there is. It's a lot of fun. And then you found out you could bring your dog with you. You guys know this? They have what they call pup patties. And you have to specifically ask for them. And they are hamburger patties that are designed for your dog. There's no toxic ingredients at all. It's just a hamburger patty. So the next time you go, take your dog and say, I'd like a pup patty. And you go, this is great, right? Do you guys realize our out-of-state family visit us for one reason? <laughs> all of mine do. They come into town, hey, can we go to In-N-Out? Sure, love it. Why do we tell them these things? Because it's good. In a similar fashion, but with a much greater gravitas and, and greatness, we share the astounding things about God because they are good. For what he's done for us, there, there, is, there is no parallel in this life to the work of God. There's nothing that actually compares to what God can do in us, and it compels us to gently persuade others to accept him as well. The word persuade here, let me give you a definition of it. It means to render tranquil, bring down the temperature, bring down the stress, to win over, to assure, to gently convince. And folks, I think you and I both know that requires patience. And it takes compassion and a listening more than telling, a, a sensitivity to their circumstances and what's going on in their lives, caring for them, deeply caring for others. But it also requires knowing the greatness of God. Knowing that it is required that we tremble in his presence because of who he is, claiming his promises, reacting to his will and desires for us. My mom is uh, at a point where she voluntarily decided not to drive her car anymore. And, uh, and she said, what, what will I do with my car? Shall I sell it? Shall I give it? My older brother um, has, and Jeff, forgive me if I get this wrong, five kids, maybe six, five. His youngest daughter is graduating from high school, and guess what? She needs a car. And, and so my, my mom said, I want to give it to Allison, who lives in Arkansas. Doug, can you help me with that? I said, sure. Yeah, we'll take care of that. Called my brother up and said, hey, Jeff, would you like a car for Allison? It's a 1998 Toyota Camry, which, by the way, was made in Japan, and it's going to live forever. 125,000 miles on it already. I mean, it's going to go to 300,000 or more. Runs great. She gave it a paint job recently. Looks great. And uh, he goes, yeah, that would be awesome. I'll arrange the transport for it. So this last Friday from, you know how they give you hours? You know, from 10 to 12. Yeah. And then I got a 12 call at 2 o'clock. Uh, it's going to be from 2 to 4. Didn't get any call after that. He showed up at 10 o'clock at night. Which is okay, because he called me ahead of time. And I was like, yeah, sure, let's load the thing up. So this huge, you know, these things are 80 feet long. These, this huge transport pulls up on our street. And he comes to the door, and, and okay, let's get the thing on the, on the um, transport. And he gets in and drives it over to the ramp. I don't even know how they do this. Uh, I would be terrified to try it myself. It's pitch dark. And he's got the headlights of a 1998 Camry shining on this ramp drives it up there, and then he gets out and he starts doing all the adjustments, you know, to get the thing secured on there with no headlamp. And I took my phone and I walked over there and I said, can I help you here? Oh, yeah, yeah, thanks. I forgot my headlamp this morning. He's already picked up nine other cars. 
and he's exhausted. And he's going to be driving for a little while, taking a nap, then driving the next day. And I said, you know what? Do you, have, do you need a headlamp? Ah, uh, yeah, I forgot. Let me give you one. So I went in, and as I'm going into my garage to get a headlamp, this song comes to mind. Give of your best to the master. You guys ever hear that one? And I looked at all the different headlamps that I had. Here's my oldest. There's my newest from Home Depot. I thought, all right, give him the best. So I took it out to him, and I gave it to him. It's got a brilliant light. He puts it on. He's getting all his stuff done. He comes back. He says, hey, thanks a lot. Here you go. I said, no, keep it. You're going to need it. Really? Thank you. I said, hey, can we pray for you before you go? What's that? He had never heard a prayer. And I said, well, <laughs> it's when we talk to the creator of all things. And we just ask him for a safe trip and to take care of you and make sure there's you know, nothing wrong with your rig and stuff. He goes, oh, no, that's okay. And he was from another faith tradition. And I said, hey, it's all right. I respect where you're at. But I just want you to know that God loves you. And uh, we do too. We're going to pray for you after you leave. And you know what he needed right then was gentle persuasion. He did not need a gospel presentation at 10 o'clock at night as he's finished uploading this vehicle. He needed to have a free headlamp with the name of Jesus attached to it. And that was it. And sometimes our persuasion is as simple as that. Other times we get the privilege of, of saying in more detail, here's who Jesus is and here's what God has done for me. And it's so great. So that's number one. Knowing what we now know, we should secondly rejoice in internal life change rather than mere external appearances. Paul uh, writes here in verses 11 and 13, he says, but what we are known, what we are is known to God. Now, that, by the way, that's a different known. That's a different word than to know that we've been looking at. We'll talk about that in a second. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience, he writes to the Corinthians. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but we're giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. If we're beside ourselves, if they think we're nuts, well, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. Folks, not everybody's going to respond to this gospel message. Not everybody is going to understand the greatness of God or, or his incredible offer of new life. And some of them will look at Christians and they're going to say, you know what, he's a little bit touched. He's a little bit off his rocker. He's one burrito short of a combination plate. You know what I mean? The guy just doesn't have it together. He doesn't understand life. And Paul says, you know, if they think that, it's okay. We're doing this for God. But if we're in our right mind, if this all makes sense to you, then it is for you. So Paul says, I don't need to toot my horn in front of you anymore. I don't have to pursue validation from um, a public audience. I know that God knows me. Now get this. This is not oida. This is not gnosko. This is the Greek word thino, rhymes with rhino, okay, thino. And it means this, to bring to light, to put on display, to make conspicuous. So God looks at Paul and Paul says, God knows who I am. He knows my heart. My life is open before him. There's nothing I can hide. There's no secret compartments from God, no hidden agendas. It's all been brought to light before God. He knows me, and it's a wonderful thing because he still loves me. And he says, I'm hopeful that you Corinthians will do the same. 
you'll look into our heart and you'll say, hey, we, we know Paul. He's on display before us. Now, folks, this is challenging for churches, I, I think, because we're all still works in progress. Would you all agree with that? Anybody here perfect this morning? Good, don't raise your hand. <laughs> I can't. We're all works in progress. Everything about us is not yet known to each other. Uh, we have hidden motives. We have obscured feelings. We have smoke screens about our true thoughts and, and motives. And God says, I want you to be more transparent with each other. I want you, I hope that you will look at each other and say, yes, we're, we're actually beginning to understand everything. Randall Buffum at our recharge station uh, back at uh, Recharge had a, a, a group of guys up here, and they talked about intimate friendship. Any of you at that particular recharge? Okay, I'm going to test your memory for a second. He said, this is all very simple, and I want you to fill in the blank. Number one, isolation is bad. Intimacy is good. That's right. God says, hey, I want you to be open books with each other. I want you to be able to turn to any page and not have it glued shut because, hey, nobody's allowed to look at this page of my life. No, he wants us to be open books with each other, and that is challenging. But it can be done because what's on the inside of our heart is more important than external appearances. God looks on the heart, right? That's where he does his business. So how do we do this? Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, for, so there's our explanation, for the love of Christ controls us. This is one of the ways we're able to expose ourselves more to, more to others. He controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So first of all, we are more transparent with each other because Christ's love controls us. This word control is a beautiful word. It means to hold us together when we're falling apart. He controls that. He compresses our wounds when we have been in pain. There's that controlling of the wound. He has custody of us when we feel lost or isolated. He holds us in his embrace when we feel unloved. He exerts this constraining influence on us when we would wander away. He's our great shepherd. He controls, comforts, compresses, takes care of us. And if he's doing that, guess what? I can be less defensive. I can be less controlling. I can be less harsh because he is taking care of me. Second is we all have the same baseline. He not only controls us, he says one has died for all and therefore all have died. When Jesus died on, on the cross for us, he died for everyone, not just the elect, but for all. All means all. So, everyone here this morning, Jesus died to benefit you. Everybody in Redlands, everybody uh, in Southern California, nor Northern California, California, the U.S., the global world, he died for them all, born and unborn. He died for them. Even up to the point of just before eternity, that last child to be born, Jesus died for them as well. So for the yet-to-be Christian, the one who's still thinking about all of this, there is something waiting for them, the new life that comes out of the death. But for the Christian, when we died with Christ, we were resurrected to a new life. Look at these passages up on the screen. Galatians 
I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in uh, Christ, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I died with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So that's the Christian experience. Look at Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we keep sinning so we get more grace from God? He says, Meganoita, may that never be. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Next week at Forest Home, I hope you'll come. Lisa and I are looking forward to it. Twelve people are going to be baptized. A good number of them from the youth ministry, some of them from the single adults. And what they're doing when they go under the water, this is familiar ground for us, right? But it's this imagery of what God has done for us. When they go under the water... I had one pastor, you know, he used to say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he would add, drink ye all of it as they're going under the water. That's okay. We'll give you time on that one. They're being identified with the death of Christ. And when they're brought out of the water, they're being identified with this new way of living. And that's what we're going to be looking at at Forest Home. It's the starting ground for every believer. It's what all pulls us together, the same baseline. And number three, our job is not to live for ourselves anymore. It's to live for Christ. Look at the passage again. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. All of this leads us to one conclusion. We owe everything to Jesus. And it changes the way we look at each other. Look at verse 16. From now on, Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't think about people in terms of their body and, and who they are and what we see. He says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. It changes how we see each other. And lastly, knowing what we now know, we should engage in the ministry of restoration. How many of you in your text have the word reconciliation? Okay. Okay. The original language uses this idea of reconciliation, but it uses the word to restore, to bring back what was lost. So it's not just connecting us back with God, but it's restoring something from the past. Look at verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Stop a second. Ask yourself, is my seat vibrating? Because it should be. When we look at these truths, it, it sends ripples of, of life-shocking, perspective-shaking truth. So as you listen to this last section, hold on to your seat. Because he wants to share just a couple things for us that makes this huge difference. He says, if you are in Christ, he says, if you have turned from being focused on yourself to being focused on the kingdom of God, on Jesus Christ... If you've repented of your self-centeredness, of wanting what you want when you want it, and you're embracing Jesus' offer of new life, if you have dethroned yourself 
and the pursuit of this world's attractions, and you've enthroned Jesus as your king. If you no longer look to the past or to the present to validate who you are, instead look to Jesus Christ as the source of your identity. If the Holy Spirit resides in you, and you are included in the kingdom of God, if you are in Christ, he says, you are a new creation, and not new in the sense of you just got it. Like if you buy a new car. Oh, I just got a new car. That's not what he's talking about here. It's not like a gift card to Mill Creek Cattle Company. You've got it, and it's a great thing, but you just received it. No, the new here is something that's never existed before. There's no precedent for it. There's no previous perception of it. It's like a new technology. Remember when Apple came out? What, 10 years ago? Seems like a lot longer than that. New technology. This is the new kind of, new kind of. And the point is that God is making you and I into something far different than anything we have ever seen or experienced before. And if that isn't enough, hope you're still holding on to your seat. He says at that same exact moment when he gave you this new creation with him, he disengaged you from your past. He uses the word here, the old is gone. You see that there? That word is arche. We get our word archaic from it, right? The things of the past. But it's also the word for arch enemy, Satan. You have been freed from your arche, that master, that magistrate, that authority of the past who has kept you in the chains of slavery, who has bound you up, who have separated you from God. The old behaviors, the old master has been removed. How did God do that? How did he free us from the past? Look at verses 18 and 19. Paul says, all of this is from God, who through Christ restored us to himself, gave us the ministry of restoration, that is, in Christ, God was restoring the world, the cosmos, to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of restoration. And all of this is completely and only because of God and his plan to rescue us. And he says he did it through Christ. And God does not count our trespasses against us. Have you ever been, have you been wondering why the Legos are up here? Can you guys see them from over here? I have grandkids who love Legos. My daughters grew up when they were just kind of coming around. Did you realize that the word Lego is Greek? God uses it right in this passage here. It's the word for control. God does not Lego us. The word Lego in the Greek means to accumulate, to assemble, to construct, to calculate, to enumerate. So I brought some of my Legos this morning. Yes, I do own Legos. And if I can get that up here, there's one of our small platforms. This is going to be Pastor Doug. And this are all of my sins. Actually, there's not enough Legos there. <laughs> what this passage is saying is that God does not take you, or in this case, me, my pad is here, and he doesn't begin to look at the sins of Pastor Doug. Oh, yeah, there's greed. We'll put that there. I'm going to assemble that. Oh, and here is anger, because you had a real problem with anger when you were growing up, Doug. Yeah, I know, Lord, I did. And, and here's this other sin here, and, and 
man, we could go through all of them, and he's just assembling all of my sins before him. He's counting them. He's legoing them. And then he gets it all assembled, and you know what? He looks at me, and he goes, gosh, what a dirty, rotten scoundrel he is. What an evil creature. How could he have accumulated all of these sins? And by the way, my tower would be quite a bit taller, right? God does not lego your sins. He doesn't count them. He doesn't accumulate them. He doesn't compile them. He says, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, those have been removed. Can I hear an amen to that? Your past, all of your past, has been removed at the cross because Jesus died for the sins of humanity, all humanity right there. He died as a perfect individual, never sinned in thought, word, or deed. In fact, his worst enemies could not pin anything on him, and they finally had to say, he's blaspheming when he said, I am God. And he hung on that cross, shed his blood, had the Father block out the Son for three hours as the wrath of God was poured on him. Peter writes, he became sin. In fact, we also see it in this passage. Who knew no sin. Why? What happened? Well, there was a transaction at the cross. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, to be, uh, have the appearance of sin before God, to be actually all of our sins, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, folks, let that sink in. All of your accumulated sins, God says, I, I'm not going to look at them. What I'm going to look at is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His perfection. How he's done everything right. And when I look, he says, at, at the world, at you, if you are in Christ, that's what I see. You've been made right and brought back into relationship. You now have the character of Jesus Christ being blossoming within you as the Holy Spirit. Look at this quote. It, it comes from um, Got Questions. Com. And they write, the only way we could be reconciled to a holy and perfect God was with a holy and perfect offering, which we would not have had if Jesus Christ was not without sin. As Peter declared, for you know that it is not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Absolutely perfect. Can we have the rest of it up there, guys? Indeed, it was the sinless blood of Christ alone as a sin offering that was able to bring peace between God and mankind. And with this restoration, we can be holy in God's sight without blemish and free from accusation. The sinless Christ's death on the cross at Calvary paid the full penalty for the sin of all who believe in him. This new reality gives us a new identity. Look at the last verse here. Paul says, and so, we are ambassadors for Christ. So what's an ambassador? 
Well, if you go to Mozambique and you go to the American embassy there, you're going to meet the American ambassador, Peter Hendrick Verman. He actually lives uh, in uh, Mozambique. He lives on American soil in Mozambique. He represents America too. Mozambique. He helps American citizens there, and he welcomes for asylum all who are desperate and want a new beginning. He's the ambassador. Folks, every single one of us is an ambassador for Christ. We live in a foreign world. This is not our home. We're just passing through, right? But we live on the soil of Jesus Christ. We belong to him. We represent him. We help other believers in this world who are also making their way through this world. And we also welcome any of those who are desperate and in need of rescue because of all that God has done for us. So let's look back for just a minute. Knowing what we now know, we gently seek to persuade others. Knowing what we now know, we rejoice in internal life change rather than in mere external appearances. And knowing what we now know, we engage in the ministry of restoration or reconciliation, inviting our world to come and find God's new life in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I wish we could do justice to this passage. There's such rich truth and promise and reality here that even just this short period of time uh, doesn't contain it all. But God, we want to um, thank you that you, in your creative ownership of all things, ourselves included, this world included, that God, in your great love for each of us, all of us, you sent Jesus Christ as your representative, God the Son, into this world with the sole purpose to seek and to save that which was lost, which had been lost at the Garden of Eden, and all of these thousands and thousands and thousands of years has been wandering from you. You sent Jesus to restore us to you. And you did that through his perfection. As God the Son, never once violating your will, fulfilling all of the commands of God. And he had the right to return to heaven as that perfect being without any other implications on his life, but he chose to be arrested. He chose to be beaten and whipped. Father, he chose to carry that cross to Calvary, and he chose to die, exchanging his perfection for our weaknesses, our failures, our sins, our trespasses, all of the evil of our lives, all of the wrong of our lives. He, he exchanged it in the heavenly court. And when he came back from the dead, Father, you put your stamp of approval on it and said, yes, it is truly finished, this, this new covenant, this new way of living. Folks, he invites all of us. If this morning in being here, this is new to you, if it is something you've heard about and never really fully understand, and maybe even now you're still grasping it, but he invites you to come. He wants you to accept the fact that you are a sinner, that you need change and transformation. He wants you to believe that Jesus Christ is the only one who can do that for you. And he asks you to choose to accept him. It's as simple as that. To all who believe, 
God says. They become children of God. So we invite you to do that today, just to pray simply, God, I know that I have sinned. I know I've made mistakes. I know I have a past that I'd love to have removed from your sight. I believe that Jesus is the one who paid for my sins, and it is to him alone I can run and find this help. Please change me. Help me. God tells us if you pray that to God, if you talk to God about that, he will change you from the inside out. He'll give you the Holy Spirit, and he'll make you new. So, Father, for that today, this morning, we are grateful. We praise you for your goodness, and we ask that you would continue to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody have any kids at home who like Legos? Can you pass that on down? My one request, before we finish in worship today, my one request, <laughs> that's all right, when you put that together, remind yourself God does not do that with your sins, okay? God bless you all.